Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. your host, Mike Halen, the Senior Restaurant and Food Service Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, we got a good one today. Uh, we're joined by Howard Penny. Howard's the Managing Director, Consumables Analyst, and uh, overall restaurant guru at Hedgeye Risk <laughs> Management. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Hedgeye, uh, the firm does a great job helping its clients, including institutional investors, retail investors, and corporations, navigate the markets and the economy. Thanks for doing this, Howard. Hey, thank you, Michael. Glad to be here. Yeah, man, this is this is cool. I've been looking forward to this one. Uh, why don't you just start us off by telling the listeners a bit about Hedgeye and how your research differs from the traditional sell-side research that's out there? Sure. So Hedgeye has been around for about 15 years now. Uh, we started with four of us, um, basically, in Keith's office. Keith McCullough is my uh, boss, founder of Hedgeye, um, as a consumer analyst, right? So we've had four consumer analysts that got together. It's an independent research firm. So we don't manage money. We don't trade stocks. We literally get paid by providing money-making ideas to clients. Um, and if, you know, they can fire us every four, every three months if they don't like us, uh, which is why, what I really like about it is because we are literally focused on picking stocks and making money. And that's, you know, that's the name of the game, frankly. And um, so we've got, um, as I said, we've been in business for 15 years. Uh, we now have, um, what, I'm a sector head that I cover, as you said, I cover consumables. There are 12 of us uh, now. There's 70 employees total. Uh, and Keith does, my boss does commodities, countries, currencies, um, and uh, manages the overall business. Yeah, it's a great product. And I really like what you said about there about uh, picking stocks and, and helping your clients make money. I, I feel like on the sell side, sometimes that gets put to the, to the back burner, you know? Right. Um, well, it makes the independent right element of it more important because yes. there's a lot of times when you, um, you, you can talk to management teams and they'll tell you one thing. And if you're you know, trying to do a raise the flag tour and take them on some promotional tour to visit clients, you're gonna, you know, buy into what they're saying, right? And uh, and not have, you know, some independent thinking, uh, which will allow you to come to sometimes different conclusions than the traditional sell side analysts have. For sure. Um, so what, you know, why don't you kick us off too about, uh, you know, about talking about the macro outlook at Hedgeye. Yeah, so, um, so we're pretty bearish uh, right now on the consumer, and I think that's probably not, I mean, I don't know if that's out of consensus right now, but we're um, pretty bearish about where the, uh, the consumer's heading, especially into the fourth quarter, um, in, in terms of, you know, we're, we're what, I guess, September 1st, people are starting to accrue interest on their uh, student loans again. October 1st, people are going to have to start making 
paying student loans again. Um, I don't know if you saw this, uh, Michael, but McDonald's um, traffic, um, as measured by Placer, has gone through a, I think, a five-week sequential uh, deceleration and is now negative for the first time in two years, uh, which is remarkable. And then if you put that together with Dollar General and a, you know, a few other things, what Walmart's saying, the low-end consumer, I think, is, is really struggling, and I think it's getting worse, frankly. So we're 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 pretty bearish in terms of you know where the consumers headed headed sorry for the next uh, for the next three months and into the first quarter and then when you think about the restaurant industry in particular you know we had a the industry had a difficult period in July and August last year because of gas prices uh, and what that and the pressure that put on sales and we're now heading into a period where comparisons get really difficult for the industry so. We see a lot of challenges uh, ahead, especially for the consumer, and and that's being echoed with what I think companies are saying. And you know, Dollar General, I think, is probably the the stock du jour, right, in terms yeah. of talking about what the low end consumer is doing. But then you have companies like Chipotle, which completely, you know, they're not seeing any of that, and they're talking about a strengthening of the consumer, which is a little counterintuitive to. You know what what most of the macro data is showing, but uh, we're pretty bearish as to you know pretty as to what things are going to look like heading into the end of the year. Yeah, I hadn't seen the McDonald's data yet, but that's cure. That's interesting because in the second quarter they were one of the few restaurant chains that didn't see a deceleration in their four year same store sales trend. So, and you know, with fourteen thousand stores in in the United States, I think that's a a pretty good indicator maybe of of where things are going. And uh, you know, and Chipotle, you know, that one's interesting because people give them a pass because. They've done so well over the last few years, but their their trends and Starbucks as well slowed pretty significantly uh, in the second quarter. But they kind of got a pass by the street. Yeah, yeah, and you know, understandably so. I mean, David Nickel has done a uh, a tremendous job fixing Chipotle since he's been in the business or since he's been running the business. And coming out of the pandemic, they were the best performing chain in terms of margin improvement, EBIT margin improvement. I think their EBIT margins relative to 2019 are up some 800 basis points or something ridiculous like that. So um, uh, they've done a great job running the business. So he deserves the accolades that he's had, but it feels like that story is in, in evidence, not just feels like, but there's evidence that that story is getting a little long in the tooth. Yeah, yeah, and the valuation's uh, rich to be sure. Um, they finally fixed one of the issues I had with it, which was uh, they were didn't want to franchise internationally forever, right. and growth just it was non-existent. So signing up with Al Shai in the Middle East, I think, is, is a good start. Obviously, it's going to take some time for that that part of the business to move the needle, though. Yeah, they well, so interestingly enough, right? So yes, they're going to franchise parts of the you know the international component, but they're also beginning to invest in, you know, they do run 50 stores outside the United States and Canada. So they're going to be investing in infrastructure uh, to be able to grow the store base, because that's how, I mean, if they're going to keep that, you know, sort of mid single, high single digit unit growth story going, right, in two years, they're going to need an international component yeah. to it. So spending is going up to support the infrastructure needed to keep that that there were to accelerate international unit openings. 
Yeah, for sure. I, so I think they're planning on 10 new company-owned stores in Canada. Um, but I'd like to see them, ref- you know, maybe if Canada, if they have an opportunity to build stores there, that makes sense. But uh, I'd even like to see them refranchise the UK and Germany and, and try to accelerate that that um, that growth overseas. But, you yeah. know, who knows? We'll see. It's still such a small piece of that business, but it's interesting. Um, you know, and you talked a lot about the restaurant traffic slowing here in the U.S. What, what are some of the trends that are causing that? So I think there's a couple things. Um, consumer, I'll say consumer normalization is one. Uh, so the return to full service restaurants, right? You're no longer spending much as much on large group meals through drive throughs right? So the average check, um, so that drove average check much higher into the pandemic. So as that's coming back, you're seeing a slowing uh, in sort of people buying singular entrees instead of, you know, four people or going with your family four through a drive through Independents are also coming back. So I think there is a, you know, not a new popularity, but maybe independents are becoming more popular again. Um, they were very popular heading into the pan- pandemic, but obviously struggled into the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic. So, um, and you're seeing that in the case volumes for the distributors. So, yeah. you know, Cisco and some of the other companies are showing pretty good um, case volume growth, and, you know, low single digit case volume growth, but not like the decline, two, 3% decline in traffic that you're seeing. Yeah. for, um, you know, the whether it's Blackbox or NapTrack, which are the two big um, com- companies that measure sales for the industry. Uh, price is also coming in. So um, traffic, as I said, has been negative, but you're seeing menu prices come down significantly, So, which is also helping or hurting, depending on how you want to yeah. look at it. And then, you know, Walmart on their most recent conference call, um, sort of mentioned specifically the consumers are stretching uh, their dollars further and seeking better value across more categories, right? Uh, and they said um, specifically grocery staples and in-home meal options were being purchased more often. So you've got that element to it. So which kind of gets back to what we were talking before about, you know, McDonald's, right? And McDonald's seeing a deceleration. I mean, if if people are buying you know, in-home meals at Walmart, right? Which their grocery business is doing really well. That's a, that's not a, a, an insignificant competitor for the restaurant industry. So, um, yeah. and the, all this is going to have, uh, you know, an impact into the fourth quarter and into 2024 uh, for margin dollars and margin dollar growth for how that's going to, you know, look into, especially into the fourth quarter. So if you've got, you know, independence coming back, price coming down, supermarkets are more competitive, uh, labor inflation still around, right? That's not going away. Well, there is some, you know, food costs are coming down. There could be some margin pressure heading into the fourth quarter and certainly into 2024 for a lot of these restaurant companies. Yeah, for sure. I guess there was two pieces of that that I, you know, um, find interesting. You know, uh, one thing is how bad traffic's been, even though a lot of these group orders are breaking into individual orders. And I know some chains try to do their best to to count entrees um, on a large order. But, um, you know, how much how bad is traffic really if if they're right. getting some sort of a benefit there with uh, orders fracturing? Right. So the biggest culprit is Shake Shack. Like they're like to me, they're 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 a perfect example of what you're saying, right? Because, you know, I, I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but they're they're saying their 
traffic was down like one to two percent, right? But you know, if you look at the difference between menu price and mix and and what their traffic is, it, the traffic suggests that it's down four or five percent, not down one to two percent. But that totally can be accounted for the way they count for entrees, right? So if you're one person coming in and ordering for four or four entrees, right? That's you know one. That's just one person, right? But but really, entrees are down four percent or yeah. four or three or four, kind of depending on what the number is. So they're kind of like the for me the poster child for what you're talking about, um, and and the way people really count entrees. And there's yeah. some that do it right, but I think um, and I like to pick on Shake Shack. <laughs> I, know you, but, <laughs> I, I know you do. We've been picking on Shake Shack since the IPO together. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll get back into Shake Shack because I, I have yeah, some yeah, questions. Yeah, yeah. I want to know what you think about uh, the activist and stuff like that. But So we'll return to that. The other thing that I found interesting, you know, that, that really resonated with me with your last answer was, uh, you know, about the food at home versus food away from home. And restaurants are trying to catch up with the pricing this year, and so there's a massive delta right now in terms of inflation at eating, uh, yeah. you know, in a restaurant versus uh, what we're seeing at the grocery store, right? Yeah, and I've, you know, I have, I struggle with that metric because a lot of people like to, you know, sort of look at the absolute level of inflation and say, okay, restaurant prices are going up more than you know, supermarket prices are the other way around, and this is going to impact consumption. When the reality of it is, it is always significantly cheaper to go to a supermarket and buy your food and bring it home and cook it right because yep. you are doing the cooking you're doing the dishes and you're doing the cooking so no matter what that stat says it's always cheaper to go buy you can buy a dozen eggs for six bucks and at, you know and have four meals right if you want to eat eggs yep. for two days right so i just don't like i understand how people want to look at it that way but the fact of the matter is it will always be and has always been cheaper to go to a supermarket and buy a meal and yeah. bring it home. Now, yeah, and it was such a big yeah. talking point in 2022 for all these companies like, yeah, well, we're raising our prices, but they're not up as much as the grocery stores. And it was like it was like uh, equity capital markets guys all over the street were just like telling it you know, parroting this to all the management teams and then the management teams would get on the call and all say the same thing. And you're 100 percent right. It's always cheaper to eat. Uh, shop yeah, at the grocery 100%. store and cook for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So you, you think the second half of the year is going to be a uh, difficult transition, and you, and you talked about some of the things that are going on with the macro, uh, some of the things that are going on with uh, inflation. Um, you know, is there anything else you think that we should 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 mention? You know, I, labor inflation continues to be pretty high for the industry, right? I mean, I think that's the you know the big the big wild card sort of into the fourth quarter um, because you don't you know d depending on what your menu looks like, whether you're a beef centric, chicken centric, or seafood centric, right? You're going to have different levels of food inflation, right? You're seeing red meat prices are still very inflationary. So if I was to pick a group. A menu, right? Or a, not to pick on Shake Shack again, but <laughs> but just think of a red red meat centric menu that has food inflation and labor inflation and pricing coming in. Those groups of names are going to have the most trouble in the fourth quarter, right? Because 
you're still seeing four to 5% labor inflation. And that's probably not going to go lower. It's not 9% anymore. It's not 8% anymore. But there is still going to be labor inflation and there will never be deflation, right? Wearing wage is always going to go up. Uh, and, and you're always going to find, you know, one concept competing and get another concept for a restaurant manager or, you know, having to pay bonuses to lure people to come to your concept, whatever the structure may be, but labor inflation will always be there. So the wild card really is going to be food inflation for some concepts into the fourth quarter. So you got slowing sales for a number of reasons. We got menu prices coming in. So then the determining factor is, you know, what, um, what the labor inflation does look like and what the margin structure is for a lot of these companies. And then into the first quarter of next year, when the when we're up against just insane comparisons, um, it, it just, it, it's really going to be a difficult time for a lot of these names and across the board. I don't know anybody that's not going to, um, that's going to do well, frankly, even, even the mighty Chipotle is going to struggle into the first quarter. Yeah. Well, we know they've raised prices a lot over the last, uh, you know, three years, but, um, yeah, yeah, this inflation thing is interesting, man. So, uh, I'm, I'm a fan of, uh, Jim Rogers and his book hot commodities. I don't know if you've ever read it, but no, uh, I have not. Oh, uh, you have to, you have to, he talks about, uh, the history of commodity cycles and uh, on average they last 17 years and he goes into all the details of, of why they last. And it's just such a great, clearly written book. And, um, you know, throughout, history you know we've seen it repeat over and over and the last cycle was shortened um i don't know why maybe i haven't he hasn't written a, a follow-up book to it maybe mm -hmm. it's because of you know technological advances in drilling and, and fracking and all these different things um but if he's right you know about these cycles and if we're at the beginning of another commodity cycle which could last anywhere from 10 to 20 years uh, you know, that could be troublesome mm -hmm. for restaurants. I mean, the, the industry has definitely benefited from very modest inflation for a very long time. So, uh, yeah. that's always something I just kind of keep in the back of my head, but you, you should check that book out. I think you'd really like it. I will. Okay. So based on all the things that you mentioned, all the difficulties and, and, you know, you know me, I'm, I'm, I'm bearish with you. I, I couldn't agree more. Who do you think is going to win and who do you think is going to lose in this environment that we're entering? Yeah. So I just add one more thing to what you were saying before. Um, you know, it's surprising to see in the second quarter, the number of companies that missed revenue estimates, right? So they missed revenue, but beat earnings. Yep. Right. So, but when you're running six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, whatever price, it's easy because that flows through at 99% gross margin, right? You can beat earnings, but sales are slowing. That's going to get worse into the second quarter, right? Because yeah, everybody's we're starting letting their, to, their price roll off. Prices are rolling off, you know, and, and traffic is slowing. And the, and the south side analysts don't, it's not real time. Like they'll wait to hear from the management team to lower their estimates or raise their estimates or whatever it may be. So I, I was surprised to see the number of, even Chipotle missed revenue estimates uh, for the second quarter, yeah. right? And that's only going to get worse because we're still seeing sales slowing, right? And, and as estimates are not coming down. 
So um, it's just one of those things that I just wanted to add to that because I was just thinking about the, the, the issues that we're going to be facing into the third and fourth quarter and certainly into the third quarter because sales continue slow. So now you can ask that question again. <laughs> <Forgot. laughs> yeah, who's yeah. going to win and who's going to Oh, lose? winners and losers, yeah. So we're pretty, um, pretty bearish. We don't have many uh, winners right now. Um, well, everything's gone straight up for six months. So yeah, it's, uh, it's we tough. do like we do like Domino's. Uh, frankly, Yum Yum Domino's is in the big franchise companies are are pretty much, um, you know, sort of the the top of the list, I guess you could say. Um, but let me just check who else do I have here. So we've got um, restaurant. I'm a big fan of what's going on at restaurant brands, Domino's, yes. uh, Yum, and then. Um, and then we're, there's a, a couple of names that we want to buy into the downturn uh, that we're going to see coming into the fourth quarter, like uh, Darden. Taste has been on the long list for us as well. Uh, First Watch, I, I think First Watch is a really cool little company, frankly. Um, it's a, you know, a, a breakfast, brunch, and lunch concept. But those are... One shift model. Yeah, I love it. Um, but those are the ones that sort of stick out to me as, as the winners, Um and I, I actually have um, Brinker uh, as a long as well. I think there's some interesting things that are going on there. But, you know, that's a, a longer tail turnaround. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So let's go, I guess, in, for the winner, uh, winners. Yeah, um, you know, I think we're on the side, same side on most of these. Russell Wiener, I'm a fan of, and I'm a fan of his former uh, mentor, Patrick Doyle. I think uh, Restaurant Bands is... Um, I think he, it sounds like he's changing the culture over there and changing the focus and, and, and kind of got management focused on the right things. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. What, what are your thoughts on, on, um, the turnaround at, at restaurant brands and what they're doing at BK and, and Popeye's right now? Yeah. So I think, um, it's, it, it's the focus on what matters, right. And well, well, frankly, um, 3G destroyed the business, right? Yeah. So it was, you know, like Kraft Heinz and a couple of the others, like Budweiser, Kraft Heinz, and restaurant brands are the three sort of 3G companies that have been destroyed by their, you know, way of running their businesses. So with an iron fist, with an iron fist, right? And and they didn't care about franchise profitability, right? All they cared about was, you know, sitting on, you know, making sure, you know. The people at Burger King were sitting on pickle buckets in Miami because they just cut GNA to the, you know, to the bottom. So re- undoing what was what was done in the last you know ten years is important. And you know Patrick Doyle coming in and focusing on franchise profitability w- will be you know why that stock wins. And that can happen a couple ways. Uh, most importantly, sales go up. But before that happens, you're seeing them force franchisees out of the system. <laughs> I don't, that's maybe not a good way to put it, but the reality of the matter is it, when you look at, you know, McDonald's or Wendy's or Yum, you know, Taco Bell, KFC, Pizza Hut, any one of these big brands that have been successful in the turnaround, it's all because they have fixed the franchise system, right? And they take the old franchisees, they force them out, you know, whether it's a generational thing or, you know, a forced sale or closures or however you fix the system, 
But that calling of the system will immediately have an impact on what the street cares about, and that's an improvement in franchise profitability. And as soon as you begin to see that improvement in franchise profitability, um, sorry about that if you can't hear that background noise, um, oh, but uh, that's what will really drive uh, the the uh, you know the, the stock higher is that improvement in in franchise profitability, and that's Patrick Doyle coming in, right? And that's how you. Um, that that's that's what will ultimately be um, you know why this stock wins and then yeah. and then you can get to the you know the Burger King turnaround right the the Burger King they, they sort of play lip service to the success um, that Burger King has uh, experienced here so far but the reality of it is traffic's still negative right yeah. so there is no turnaround at Burger King yet but that's fine. You, well, you've got to you got to fix the franchise system first. And once you fix the franchise system first, you close the stores, you get the store base looking better, you get healthy franchisees in there who want to be in there and want to run the business, and then you'll see the traffic improve. Yep, for sure. And then also, you know, the unit unit economics look better, FDDs improve, you get a little buzz around the system, and then people want to start opening stores again, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's you know two or three years down the road. Yeah. But they already have strong international, so um, you know there's there's other pieces of that business that that's uh, kind of going to push it, it along a little. This bit. This is right? a little inside baseball with respect to QSR, but Patrick Doyle, who was the ex CEO of Domino's, who turned around that company, there are I think eight or nine different uh, master franchisees for Burger King that are also Domino's. Franchisees, so there's an element to this story that has dominoes all over it, right? Because you've got really healthy, strong franchisees globally, right? Not not in the U.S., but globally, that will allow this company to um, accrete value to shareholders over a, an extended period of time because they do have that international unit growth from strong, healthy franchisees. Great. Um, you mentioned Brinker, you know, we, uh, we, we linked up a couple months ago at the, at their investor day. You mentioned that's one of the names, uh, that you like in casual dining, which is obviously not a place we think is, is mostly safe to right. play. What, what are your thoughts on that? So I'm a, maybe I'm coming back to the well too many times, but I'm a, a, a fan of the Chili's brand, right? Yeah. Um, Applebee's is a disaster. So their biggest competitor, um, is failing and is a melting ice cube. So you have a new CEO coming in. He shrinks the menu, focuses on a few items, right? He gets better advertising. You know, they're, it's just, it, if you look at turnarounds across the restaurant space over the years, right? This is a classic turnaround or there's classic signposts of a successful turnaround. And, and he's got it all. It will take time, right? Because it's casual dining and whatnot. But um but I, I, I do like think Kevin is, is making all the right moves. And, and you will, once we get past this period of self-inflicted wounds, which we've got another quarter, we do have difficult comparisons coming. But um, this is a name that the street loves to hate. Uh, and, you know, I just, it feels like there's enough going on. You can see enough going on that will ultimately, um, you know, be successful. And it'll take time. Um, but this, this is one where, you know, if you buy Darden today, you might make 20% upside, right? But if you're buying Brinker today and the turnaround does work, it's a double, 
right? This is not just, you know, it's not just 10 to 15% upside. Uh, this is literally a company that, you know, could go up, you know, 50, 100% over the next two years uh, if this works. And, and there's no reason why it shouldn't work, frankly, other than the macro, because it is a, a tried and true turnaround in the restaurant space that we've seen um, executed over and over again. Yeah, it should be interesting. And uh, we talked about it when I did Hedge ITV with you. And one of the things that I forgot to mention is that they have not done really anything with strategic pricing. And so um, from what I hear is that that they've gone out and they're they're trying to uh, find someone to help them do that. And that could provide some some upside here to the numbers, man, because, you know, that's that's process has become a lot more scientific over, over the last few years. And it's allowed some of these chains like Popeye's to, uh, Popeye's, I'm sorry, I meant Chipotle, um, to increase their prices so much over the last couple of years, um, while minimizing the traffic loss. You know, this is a subject for another podcast, but I spoke with a private company, um, that helps install dynamic pricing for the restaurant industry and it is hugely successful and i there's an element to you know i know it's you, you don't see any of the big change doing dynamic pricing yet but i do after talking to this person yesterday um i think that's coming for the restaurant industry like this you know peak times why not raise price right yeah. it just it makes a ton of sense now executing it is is going to be interesting but I, that is the future uh, of the restaurant industry, dynamic pricing. And it's coming. I just, I believe it's coming. Yum Brands is actually working with the company to do it. So uh, the few of the big guys are looking at it, but I think that this is a subject that we can go on another yeah. time with. But dynamic pricing will hit the restaurant industry at some point. Yeah, for sure. It's made such a, a you know, impact on the travel industry and the hotel industry uh, and things of that nature. Yeah, I don't think there's anything stopping it. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on Kava. Oh man. I, you know, God bless Ron Shake, right? He buys, um, Zoe's for $300 million, combines it with Kava. And then all of a sudden has a $5 billion company. Like <laughs> there is no better CEO in the restaurant space than Ron Shake, Right. <laughs> I just think the guy has got the magic touch. So it is, it's stupidly priced. The valuation is just stupid, but the performance is unreal, yeah. right? And they've got, um, you know, they've got some really strong um, numbers uh, in, in terms of, you know, not only just what they've posted in the past quarter, but when you when you compare Kava to the other change in the space, right? I'll just pick Sweet Greens just because I like to pick on Sweet Greens and Shake Shack. But, <laughs> you know, 2.5 million averaging the volume, right, in 2023 with 23% restaurant level margin. That's like Chipotle's at 2.9 million averaging the volume with 26, right? So the Kava, the numbers that Kava are putting up are exceptional. And just to put it in perspective to Sweet Greens, which I think is, you know, a zero has 2.8 million in averaging the volumes and a 17% restaurant level margin. So um, Sweet Greens has uh, significant issues, but Kava is just, and now if you, you know, if Kava's got nine to, you know, six, seven, whatever, 
percentage same store sales growth and 25, 30% unit growth, and you're putting up, you have that kind of square footage growth with those kinds of four wall economics, you get a hundred times EV EBITDA. <laughs> right? Now, it won't always trade there, but <laughs> yeah. um, I, I love to, you know, I love to find great shorts in the restaurant space, but this is not, you know, other than valuation, which is never a reason to short a yeah. stock. Um, you know, this is a, a really, really strong company that has, you know, a huge future ahead of it in terms of unit growth and potential. Um, now, it, you know, will it, you know, find a few bumps in the road over time? Yeah, absolutely. But for the time being, it is, you know, it is built to succeed. Yeah. Yeah, it's very impressive at the store level for sure. And we'll see how quickly they can leverage GNA. You know, hopefully they don't end up like Shake Shack where you're like eight years later still waiting for them to leverage GNA. So, uh, you know, <laughs> to that point, um, can you talk a little bit about the activist investor and what's going on there? And if that's changed your opinion uh, about Shake Shack at all? No, it actually reinforced my opinion. Frankly, uh, we were short Shake Shack and we're short Shake Shack because it is a, a poorly run company and it's poorly run because the management team is incentive. The long term incentive comp is structured around growing revenues and EBITDA. So revenue growth and EBITDA growth. So they can just all they have to do is just, you know, take their balance sheet, open up stores, right, to grow their revenues and grow the EBITDA and not caring about average unit volumes, not caring about margins, and the CEO can get paid. And it's that crazy has that EBITDA and not operating income and operating income margin. Insane. That's crazy to me. Insane. But that, that structure has led to significant inefficiencies. So this is not a typical QSR model, right? So, you know, if you think about, you know, McDonald's, it's got those, it's got, you know, the same four walls that it opens up, you know, across the country. Shake Shack has a different box in Orlando than it does in Texas, that it does in California, that it does in, you know, all these different um, cities. And that has led to significant inefficiencies. Um, and, and that's obvious in their margin structure of the company. And now you have an activist coming in and they see all these inefficiencies, right? And they're going to try to fix it. I just don't know how they can, frankly. I mean, there are some some small things they can do, right? But if you think about, you know, I'll go back to that, you know, the that number that I was with the fast casual average unit volumes and mar restaurant level margins, they've got 3.7 million in average unit volume and a 19% restaurant level margin, which is crazy, right? Cava's got 2.5 million and 23% restaurant level margins. How come Shake Shack is so low? Well, it's so low with that average unit volume because of the inefficiencies, because of the food costs, because of the labor costs and, and the inefficiencies that are built in the system. So they have to begin to try to fix that. And I just don't know how they could do that right now. Yeah. And the amount of money they were spending on the store builds and oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Stuff no, it's so crazy, much, right? So much waste. Yeah. Um, so who do you like in the fast casual space? And, and are there any other ones that you have concerns about? So I really don't. The answer to your question is I really don't like a lot in fast casual. Right. I just the, the valuation. Chipotle is 24 times NPM EV EBITDA. Right. Shake Shack's price right on top of that. That's those those are just ridiculously 
uh, egregious multiples for all these businesses and yeah. and it's heading into a slowdown right so um i'm not a big fan i, I think you know i mean the only one that i positively disposed to but we we're talking about it is kava and i still wouldn't buy it and yeah. and sweet greens is a zero at some point like the store the the biggest joke in fast casual today right is that sweet greens is going to have robotic stores you know, in five years like are you kidding me that is not going to happen and I don't know if you've seen the store in Naperville, Illinois, that they opened, but it's two stories, two stories. And they claim that they're going to convert every one of their existing restaurants into a robotic store. Well, you know, robots break down, right? It, you know, what about depreciation, right? Yes, you might be substituting labor costs, you know, for robots, right? But you still have DNA, right? Yeah. So the restaurant level margin is not going to 26%. And just to come back to what we've been talking about with fast casual, the strength of those margins, right? Sweet Greens is at 16% or 17% restaurant level margin. They're magically saying that a robotic store after one month of testing is going to 26%. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And even if you plug in 26% on, on the second quarter numbers, they're still losing money. Like, are you kidding me? And you've got these sell side analysts that are buying into this nonsense that they're going to have robotics. Like it is, it, it literally is, it's, it's hilarious to, to watch uh, this unfold And the stocks, you know, the stocks, the stock has spiked on that for yeah. whatever reason, you know, or we know why, because people are buying into this management team thinks that they're going to have robots serving salads. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you know, even at IPO, I, you know, what I wrote in my note was like, you know, I hesitate to use a, a price of sales multiple to ever, you know, value a restaurant stock. But since they can't generate EBITDA, I have no, I have no other choice, you know, and like, call me old school, but it's like, I feel like you're supposed to figure out the store level economics on the first unit before you build the second and the third and the fourth, as opposed to still trying to figure out the unit economics when you're building 120 or whatever right. number, you know. Right, uh, right. So, so we talked a lot about the, the low and middle income consumers and quick service and fast casual. Um, obviously, our companies don't have a lot of exposure to fine dining. But the same right. store sales have been in decline since March, according to Black Box. Uh, and now luxury retail seems to be slowing. Um, you know, I just find that interesting because we've had this K-shaped recovery where the high end has done well post-pandemic and the low income, not so much. So what are you hearing about the higher income consumer? Yeah, so same idea, right? And it, and it's ha it actually slowed faster um, than, so if you go, um, I, I look at the NAP steakhouse data and it, it really started slowing in March. So it slowed earlier and there's an element to that that's hard to know because it's a little different than high-end retail, right? Because this is more T&E based, right? It's, yep. you know, you're not, you know, I'm not taking a client out to dinner this week because whatever reason, you know, mm -hmm. our business is soft or whatever. So it has a little bit more to do with um, business spending than it does with, you know, sort of consumers, you know, whether they have a job and feeling like they can buy a Gucci 
purse or whatever. Yeah. So that, that to me, that's a little bit more discretionary. And that that's a, a sign that was one of the first signs back in March that things were slowing and, you know, not the reason why we're getting bearish on the industry, but one of the reasons like, okay, this is, you know, this is, this is not good, right? Um, you know, the high-end steakhouses have been slowing for a while and have slowed and continue to slow, like it's not getting better. So it just, it's, it's an indicator to me that, um, you know, businesses are getting a little bit more cautious. Yeah, uh, because they're not, you know, people aren't taking their clients out to dinner as much. Cool. Well, listen, thanks again, Howard. Uh, that was a lot of fun, man. Where where can people find you on social media? At Howard Penny uh, on Twitter. Howard W. Right. Penny, I should say. So, but thank you, Michael. This has been awesome. Uh, loves having you on Hedge TV, uh, and thank you for having me on your podcast. Uh, really love it. Sure thing, man. It was great. And uh, thanks to the audience for tuning in. Uh, if you like the episode, please subscribe and leave a review. Uh, and tune in uh, again later this month for a discussion with uh, Beto Guajardo, CEO of Blaze Pizza. Have a good day, everybody. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.